Well, hey, Harvest, how we doing? Grab your Bibles, turn to Genesis 6. There are going to be ushers making their way down the rows. If you need a Bible, they will get one into your hands. If you don't have a Bible of your own, please take this as a gift from us. I would love to have God's Word in front of you today. We're going to be bouncing around some of the Old Testament, some of the New Testament today. We're going to be chasing one word through God's Word. And um, just as we start, I would say this. Um, Last night, by the time I got to small group, after the Saturday night service, I was um, pretty grouchy. That's probably an understatement. And um, it didn't, wasn't caused by one big thing. It was just kind of an accumulation of a lot of minor things. It had been building for a couple days. Ever found yourself in one of those slow burns? So Wednesday, Kristen and I, we went down to Chicago. We were going to spend a couple days in Chicago, but Thursday was one of those days where everywhere I went, I was behind. Traffic was nuts, trying to get in and around the city. I had to go out to the suburbs, to the Schomburg area. That took way longer than I thought, and then the meeting that I had been promised was going to be over no later than 4 o'clock, didn't end until 5.15. And I had to get back into the city by 7.30. Kristen and I were going to go see a show, but the traffic is so bad at 5.15 in Chicago that now what was supposed to be an hour drive was an hour and 40. And I plan to take my wife out to a nice dinner because when we go down into Chicago, they actually have good restaurants there, different than here. So we were going to have a nice dinner, but we didn't have time because everything was delayed. We were chasing our way through the day. So my, my diet on Thursday in Chicago was Dunkin' Donuts coffee for breakfast, Chick-fil-A, and then we quickly gobbled down a McDonald's number two. That's a quarter pounder with cheese and a Diet Coke. So that was, that was Thursday. As I paid for my Diet Coke and my meal at McDonald's, I realized I left my license out in Schomburg, which meant I had to go back there the next morning. So you're seeing my mood kind of deteriorate. Friday morning, we get up. We're not in any big hurry. We're going to drive back to Michigan Friday afternoon, but as we go to leave our condo in Chicago, I hit the button for the elevator and nothing happens. There's four elevators in our condo building. All four of them are out of service. It's not a big deal, but we're on the 36th floor, so that's 72 flights of stairs uh, with luggage, computer bags, books, gifts. We decide to wait it out see how long it'll take the elevators to get fixed. So two and a half hours later, we leave. It's raining outside, which means everybody in Chicago has completely forgotten how to drive. I'm on the expressway, which is anything but express. It's an hour and 40 minutes to go, 27 miles to get my license, to drive back to Michigan into something in northern Indiana. They call it a winter storm warning. Sometimes I just get tired of the frantic. How about you? And I get tired of the day-to-day, and I get tired of the brokenness. And it was interesting. I got to a small group last night, and uh, while we were in Chicago, we had stopped, got some food. My wife was getting the meal ready for small group. We kind of eat after church on Saturday nights and then go into our small group time. And the meal that we had was Gino's Pizza. That's my favorite. Any of you guys had Gino's Pizza? If you haven't, think it's, it's exactly like for Kano's if you stack six for Kano's pizzas and ate it at once. That's, it's that, okay? It's, it's a deep dish pizza. And then we had a uh, chocolate cake from Portillo's. So this is Chicago delicacies that we're having last night at small group. And one of the things we've been doing in our small group is we've taken some testimony time each week just to hear people's stories, to get to know each other better. 
And as I sat and listened to the story and the couple that was kind of telling about their lives and their parents and their childhoods and their children and now their grandchildren, I kept being reminded through the story of the goodness and the favor of the Lord. The man telling the story, he kept going back through his, his story, his history, and he goes, you can see God's fingerprints all over this. If this wouldn't have happened, then this wouldn't have happened, and I wouldn't have met my wife. And if this hadn't happened, we would have never ended up in Grand Haven. And just kind of weaving and orchestrating the story of the fingerprints of God on his life. That's God's favor. The big idea this morning is simply this. The most essential gift this Christmas is God's favor. And it's something that if we're not careful in the busyness, in the brokenness, in the craziness of this season, it's the one thing that we don't want to miss. So I'm just going to spend a couple minutes this morning walking through some references, both Old and New Testament, to the favor of the Lord. I'm going to start in Genesis 6. If you have your Bibles, turn there. In Genesis 6, just to get you up to date, man fell. Cal talked about this last week from Genesis 3. Man has fallen into sin, and though Man has disobeyed. God still runs towards him. He doesn't leave him. He provides. He gives provision for his physical needs, and he gives a plan to redeem his spiritual condition. That was Cal's message last week on hope. We pick up the story in Genesis 6, verse 5. We read this. It says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thought of his heart, or thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Okay, so that's a lot of like 100% words in that last sentence. Every intention, only evil, continually. As you leave today, if you haven't noticed it before, there's a mural in the back of our lobby that's called Return to Eden. And it's a beautiful depiction of uh, the Garden of Eden, and it shows Adam and Eve standing outside the gate, kind of looking back in, saying, man, I wish we could go back to the garden. Beautiful mural doesn't really line up with chapter 6. What chapter 6 says, when man sinned against God, what followed was not a longing to return to relationship with God. It was a full dash a full run away from God into more and more evil, more and more sin, more and more brokenness, and more and more despair. That's where we are in Genesis 6. Merry Christmas. Let's keep going, okay? Verse 6. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So, so this is the kind of verse that gives theologians problems. So as I was studying this verse this week, I, I actually contacted my daughter, Catherine. She was the one that kind of lit the Advent candle earlier in the, she's our kind of family theologian. And I said, there's a word for what happens in this verse, Genesis 6, 6. And she goes, oh yeah, that's an anthropomorphism. I'm like, awesome. So is a word up there? There it is. Add that to your vocabulary. I did this week. And what that means, simply stated, is this when we attribute human qualities to a divine being. And these are verses that give theologians problems. Like we'll read later in the Old Testament, it says that God remembers our sin no more. And that raises a question, how can an all-knowing God forget our sin? Or you read that, well, God changed his mind. Well, how does a God who is immutable 
who never changes, how does he change his mind? So when you come to a verse like this and you see these words like, he regretted that he made man on earth and it grieved him to his heart, it creates a theological box. You've got to kind of think, okay, what is Matt there? And here's all I'm going to tell you. Leave the theology out of our discussion today. All I want you to see as you read this verse, and, and what too often I miss because I'm thinking too deeply, what is the author trying to communicate in verse 6? And it's this simple. When we sin, it grieves the heart of God. I think too often when we sin, we understand that, well, that has consequences. It means that we have broke relationship with God, or it means that we're going to suffer when we choose to sin, we choose to suffer, or that we're going to feel guilt and shame because we've fallen short. I don't think we very often consider that our sin actually grieves or breaks God's heart. Those words, regretted, grieved, those are personal. He's not talking about something that he created. He's talking about someone that he loved, that he desired to be relation, in relationship with. You can't grieve, be grieved by someone. You can't feel this level of emotion without having loved that person first. These are the emotions that are triggered when, when that person that you've been dating or that you're engaged to says, nah, I think we need to break up or I don't want to marry you anymore. It's the emotion that you feel when your spouse says, I don't love you anymore, it's the emotion that you feel when your kids say, man, I can't stand you. This is family. This is familial pain. Our sin actually grieves the heart of the Lord. And I would argue all day, you can't cause that kind of pain. You can't grieve someone's heart if you didn't love them to begin with. God desired to be in relationship. Man is running full force the other way. And the heart of God is grieved. And we go on and read in verse 7, it says, So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry that I have made them. Everything changes in verse 8. Look at it. It says this, But Noah found, what's that word? Favor in the eyes of the Lord. Favor, if I could just give you a simple definition, two-word definition, it's lavish grace. It's grace that exceeds our need or our expectation. If you're keeping notes, I'm going to th throw five quick descriptors of what the favor of the Lord means. Here's the first one. It's undeserved. It's unmerited. It's interesting. It says, but Noah found favor with the Lord. And then the next verse, uh, verse 9, it says, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand the connection between these two verses. Order's important. What came first? God showed Noah favor. That's why he was a righteous man. God didn't look down and find a righteous man in the mess of humanity. He just said that every man's heart was on evil continually. God showed Noah favor, and that's what changed everything for Noah. Favor is the igniter. It was his righteousness that followed the favor of the Lord. It was undeserved. It was unearned. It is lavish. The favor of the Lord on the life of Noah is going to go beyond Noah. 
It's going to create a blessing and promises and covenants for Noah, his wife, his children, and his children's children. It is lavish. It is timely. God was about to destroy mankind. He just said it. He regretted making them. But in that moment, timely before that, Noah found favor. It is relational. It is personal. And it is motivated by love. I'll give you a free one. This isn't in your notes. It also rescues us. When we see the favor of the Lord, it's usually in the context of us in desperate need and the Lord showing up and rescuing us. So Noah found favor with the Lord. Here's the next place we see that word. It's in Exodus 33. Flip over there. If you're not flipping with me, the verses will be on the screen. It's interesting. When we get to Exodus 33, we're studying Moses. There's only two men in the entire Old Testament that we're told had the favor of the Lord on them. I think there were many more, but these are the two that were specifically mentioned as receiving the favor of the Lord. Exodus 33. Now, now if you remember, we spent most of the fall studying Exodus 20. Do you guys remember that story or that series was about what? Great. It was only three weeks ago. I was really scared that everybody forgot already, but it was 10 commandments. We spent like 10 weeks there and we're just a few chapters later. The people are still at the foot of the mountain where God gave the Ten Commandments. Moses has come down from the mountain. He's gone back up. He's been up there for 40 days. And in chapter 32, the people, concerned about Moses, wondering what happened, they make a golden calf. They begin to worship it. Moses comes down. He's not too happy. Destroys the calf, makes him eat the dust of the calf. That's Exodus 32. That leads us into Exodus 33. And Exodus 33 starts this way. God says it's time to go. It's time to go to the promised land that I promised to your forefathers, the, the land of Canaan. It's time for you to leave this mountain. You're going to travel there. That's the good news. I'm going to give you the land that I promised. I will fulfill everything that I promised to your forefathers. Here's the bad news. I'm not going with you. Why? Why won't God go with them? He says, because you're a stiff-necked people. I'll probably kill you along the way. You can read it. It's the first three verses of Exodus 33. And it's interesting what follows is this. In Exodus 34, when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. To, to experience the presence of the Lord, to, to experience the favor of the Lord and then lose it is disastrous. These people had been rescued from slavery in Egypt. They had seen the Red Sea be parted. They had seen the Lord appear they had heard the peals of thunder. They had seen the flashes of lightning. They had seen Moses return from the mountain, his face aglow from being in the presence of the Lord. And now the Lord is saying this, go, I will fulfill my promise, but I'm not going with you. And I want you to see what follows. I'm going to pick it up in verse 12. You're going to see this word favor show up five times in six verses. Exodus 33, 12. Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Again, this is Moses speaking to God. He says, now therefore, if I found favor in your sight, please show me your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider to this nation as your people. Verse 14, God says back to Moses, my presence will go with you. And I will give you rest. My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. 
So God, who had just said, I'm not going to go with you, is now saying my presence will go with you. Have you ever been in a conversation with somebody and you're talking so fast you're not listening to what you're, they're saying? That's what Moses does. It's like he missed verse 14. Look what he goes on and says in verse 15. And Moses says to God, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight. And I know you by name. Okay, so a couple things that we're learning about the favor of the Lord. One, it's to experience his presence going with you. And secondly, it's very, very personal. He knows you by name. The creator of the universe knows you by name. On the news this morning, I read a headline that scientists last night, they announced that they have discovered one of the oldest galaxies that they've ever found. They know how old it is because it's taken 13.4 billion years for the light from that galaxy to reach us today. Or maybe God just spoke the whole thing into existence. The God of the universe, the creator of of everything that we know, knows you by name. That's the favor of the Lord. Hey, let's play a game. Let's see how many of you I can name by name just in this section. How do you think I'm going to do? It's not going to go well for me. And if you run into me in downtown Grand Haven, I for sure won't know your name. You get it out of context, I'm completely lost, okay? Francesca, I've called you Priscilla. I've called you so many different names. I, I like struggle to remember. And I was introduced to your husband just at the Christmas party. I got no clue. I just forget names. I'm really bad. I'm sorry. God knows your name. Doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter what season, what circumstances you find yourself in. He never leaves you. He never forsakes you. We read in Isaiah 43. But now thus says the Lord. He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. He knows us. He's called us by name. We are his. That's the favor of the Lord. Let's keep chasing this word. The next place we're going to see it show up is in the book of Esther. So if you're trying to find Esther, you've got to go to Psalms, go back a couple verses or books, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms. Esther's a book that we don't turn to very often. It's an unusual book in the middle of the Old Testament. What makes it unusual is God's never mentioned in the book. And yet we see the fingerprints of God throughout the entire story of the book of Esther. I'm going to get you up to speed, chapter 1. I don't want to turn there because it is such a poor example of male leadership in chapter 1 that I don't want to take the time to read it. It'll tick off the ladies in the room. I'll just summarize it for you. In chapter 1, there is a king. He is a Persian king. It says that he rules from Ethiopia to India. They are the world power in the day. And his name is Asarus. We're going to call him king, so I never have to say that word again, okay? So the king is in charge. He's throwing a banquet, and he calls for his queen, who's very pretty. He wants to show off her beauty. He calls her down to the party, and she refuses to come. 
Now, something about kind of the rules of the Medes and Persians that day, you only went to the king when you were summoned, and if you were summoned, you went to the king. That's just how it worked. So the king summons his queen. Her name is Vashti. Vashti refuses to come down. So the king gets seven guys. And it's like, we got a problem. What are we going to do with this? And the guys go, this is a bigger problem than you know. It's not just about your wife and the queen and what she will or will not do. If our wives hear about your wife not coming when she's summoned, then they won't come when we summon them. It's going to be chaos. We had to deal with this. I told you it wasn't great. So what the seven guys, the seven counselors and the king decide to do is they banish Vashti. She's no longer going to be queen. She'll never appear before the king again. That's chapter one. Chapter two, now they're sitting around and they're like, well, now what are we going to do? And they're like, we should have a beauty contest. Find another queen. So they search the land. They send out guys. They look all over the land. They pick the prettiest women to be paraded in front of the king. He's going to choose his next queen. And one of the girls that they find, her name is Esther. She is Jewish. She is an orphan. She's being raised by her uncle Mordecai. And it says that she is brought before the king, and we see this word again, this word favor shows up in Esther 2.17. It says the king loved Esther more than all the other women, and she won grace and favor, there it is, in his sight more than all the virgins. So he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Okay, so, so she found favor. Why did she find favor with the king? Because the king loved her. The expression of the king's love was that a crown was placed on this foreign orphan's head. She was lavished grace, unmerited favor. The uncle that raised Esther, his name was Mordecai. He has an enemy, not only an enemy of Mordecai, but of all of the Jews. His name is Haman. And Haman approaches the king and he says, listen, mixed amongst your kingdom is this peculiar people. They serve their own gods. They follow their own laws. They're kind of a nuisance. And I want to do you a favor, king, with your permission. I want to destroy them. King grants them permission. They pick a day several weeks out. And he says, on that day, all of the enemies of the Jews will destroy all of the Jewish people throughout the kingdom. When Mordecai hears of this, he sends word, word to Esther, and we pick up the story in Esther 4. Mordecai says to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. What faith? Mordecai basically says either you're going to step up or God's going to raise somebody else up. But he says, you need to speak to the king but, uh, because if you don't, you and your father's house will perish. And then Mordecai gives this challenge to Esther and he says, and who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And what happens next in the story is Esther does the unthinkable. She appears before the king without being summoned. Vashti was banished for not coming when she's summoned Esther is on the other side of that, but it's just as severe a violation of protocol. She comes without being summoned. And we read in Esther 5.2, and when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. Timely, Esther is spared. 
She approaches the king. I don't have time to unpack it in detail. But what happens is the, king appeal, or the queen appeals to the king, and what happens is there's a reversal. The king, rather than allowing the Jews to be killed, he actually flips the story. And we read this in Esther 9.1. Now in the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, on the 13th day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. So the favor of the king to Esther carried beyond Esther to, who, to all of the Jews. And what it created was a reversal. Rather than the Jews being destroyed, you now see the Jews as the victors over their enemy. So, so far, three examples, Noah, Moses, Esther. Let's move on to the New Testament. Let's look at Luke 1. Luke 1. In Luke 1, verse 26, we read this. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And Gabriel came to her, to Mary, and said, verse 28, Greetings, oh, there's that word, oh, favored one, the Lord is with you. Why is she favored? Because the presence of the Lord is with her. But she was greatly troubled, verse 29, at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Verse 30, and the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now, now 2,000 years of history have kind of confused what's going on here. Uh, in, in Catholicism and different religions, Mary is elevated in status. She is considered almost as high as the Messiah. No disrespect, but Mary was an ordinary girl who God bestowed his favor upon her. That's what makes her special. It was nothing in her that created any deserving outpouring of God's favor. It was God's favor that made her special. She experiences the favor of the Lord. And I would argue that we have Noah, Moses, Esther, Mary specifically mentioned as recipients of the favor of the Lord. But there's another group of people that received his favor as well, and that's us. Luke 4. Jesus is starting his earthly ministry. He's about to preach his first sermon. And in Luke 4, verse 16, we read this. Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim Get this, the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. So, so Jesus has just said, the reason that I am here is to declare the year of the Lord's favor. That's his entire message. He just read from the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 61. His whole sermon was two minutes. That's how you know the people were favored. It's not like today, okay? It was quick. But he stood up and he quoted from the prophet. And what's interesting is not just what he quoted, but what he didn't quote. 
If I were to take you back to the original prophecy in Isaiah 61, it reads this way. To proclaim liberty to captives and the opening of the prison to those who were bound. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. That last phrase, and and the day of vengeance of our God, Jesus never quotes it when he preaches in Nazareth at the coming out of his ministry. He only refers to the favor of the Lord. And I won't take the time this morning, but I could take you to 2 Thessalonians 1, and I could show you that at the second coming of Christ, he comes to rescue those who are eagerly awaiting him, but it says he comes to pour out vengeance on those who haven't trusted in him as Savior. There is still a day of vengeance in the future coming, but the purpose of Christ's first coming, the reason that he came, the reason we celebrate Christmas, the reason there's a baby in the manger is this is the season of Emmanuel, God with us, the year of the Lord's favor where we can call out to him for salvation, repent of our sin, and he will meet us there. He will run to us to lavish his favor, to lavish his grace. That's why Paul can write in 2 Corinthians 6, 2. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We live in this season between his first and second coming. And in this season, we can experience the favor and the blessing and the fingerprints of God in our lives. We have been given lavish grace. It is undeserved. It is timely. Now is the day of salvation. Let me show you what Paul writes in Romans 5, verse 6. For while we were still weak. Okay, so this had nothing to do with us or our ability or our strength. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly goes on in verse 7 it says one would scarcely die for a righteous person though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die verse 8 but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners Christ died for us it's the favor of the Lord it's undeserved it's unmerited but at the right time it's timely it's lavish it is a great reversal Because Jesus came in a manger with an eye towards a cross and a sacrifice in our place, we go from being enemies of God, deserving of his wrath, to recipients of grace, adopted as sons into the family of the Almighty. Everyone in this room has experienced the favor of the Lord. Do you realize that? If you've accepted Christ, if you've received Christ as your Savior, you have experienced the favor of the Lord. So here's the question. How come it doesn't always feel that way? How come we're so quick to forget? Why does rush hour traffic in Chicago steal our joy? We're in this season where the redemptive work of God is, is continuing, and not yet. We have received the forgiveness and the favor of God that we still wrestle against the flesh. But my desire for you, my desire for me, my desire for my family, my, my children, my grandchildren, is that I would not get so busy 
that I would not get so distracted that I miss the favor of the Lord in my life. So I woke up this morning. I remember the time. It was 4.54. And the reason that I woke up is I heard a little cry in the other room. Our daughter, Nico, had a baby about a month ago, so we're watching Jack. Jack Maverick. I call him Ricky. So Ricky is in the other room, and not really crying, just kind of cooing like babies do. And I got up. The sermon was on my mind, and I kind of walked by his cradle, reminded of my grumpiness the night before, reminded of the reminder that I received in the testimony of one of my small group people of the fingerprints of God on their path and took a moment just to thank the Lord for the quiet moments in the early morning and the favor of the Lord in our lives. How do we get back to the favor of the Lord? How can we get back to that feeling? Can I just give you three things to consider on how we should respond? Here's the first. We need to be a people that pray for God's favor. It's interesting in Daniel... The nation is in captivity. Back then it was Babylon who was the world power. And Daniel writes this. He says, As it was written in the law of Moses, the same thing we studied all fall, all this calamity has come upon us because the people didn't obey the law. They found themselves in captivity. He said, All this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight into your truth greatest gift you can have this Christmas is to experience the favor of the Lord. How do we get there? We pray for it. We ask for it specifically. And then the second thing that we do is we prioritize it. We look for it. We understand that it is the essential gift. We take time out of the busyness and the craziness and the chaos and the calamity and we seek the favor of the Lord. And then the third thing is we take a moment And we remember to praise him for his favor because whether we realize it or not, whether we see it or not, even when we're distracted because of Jesus Christ, because of a baby in a manger, we have received the favor of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for um, your love. And I thank you for your love expressed in our lives through your favor. And Father, this is the favorable year of the Lord. Even as a child, you came as a king. This was your plan to redeem, to demonstrate your love. And Father, you are holy. You will come again with vengeance. And we thank you for your patience. We thank you for your lavish grace. So in the name of Jesus, our Savior, that we pray. Amen.